Good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't had a chance to meet, um, youngins, it is your time to get on up out of here. If you want to go get learnt up downstairs, I got some stuff going on for you, so you can head on out. Uh, teachers are in the back and ready for you. And if you would please just join me as uh, as the most uh, relevant part of our congregation is leaving. If we could just uh, say a quick breath prayer, Jesus bless our kids. Uh, Man, I tell you what, I, uh, man, I had a week this week. I, I don't know about you, but uh, um, I am so ready for, for this COVID to not be a thing. I am, uh, but man, I was, just, I just got smacked on, on Monday. I have been, I, I, it was crazy. I, it was, uh, actually, it was kind of interesting. I was kind of not really with it. But I ended up writing a paper and, and submitting it, and it was like one of the best papers I've ever written. So now I'm trying to think of like other ways that I can alter my, my state of mind to be able to write good papers. But maybe that's not a, a maybe that's not something that we'll we will test. But all that to say, I, I just want uh, want to say, if you are um, man, if you're getting sick right now, uh, I just want you to know that we are here. We've got so many different ways that, that we can be supportive of that. If you need meals, we've got a team that is ready to, to make meals. Um, it just, it seems like, like you know, we, we kind of turn a corner and then it comes back, and I'm sure that it's probably going to be the way that it is for a while, but if you are in need of anything, uh, let your family hook you up. We have, we've got the ability to do that, so um, keep that in mind. I know that several of you, this kind of uh, iteration, have had uh, COVID as well this summer. And man, this summer, and especially over 4th of July, that's like the worst day. Like, I'd rather be sick over Thanksgiving than 4th of July. I didn't have, I didn't cause any explosions on the 4th. So, anyway. Um, one other thing, before we kick this off, I just want to get ahead of another issue, uh, because this is one of those times where, um, when Jenna says to me, um, you know, Typically, what's about to follow is something that I don't know, or at least I don't know well enough. And so what, what I didn't know was that she said that, that I can't win the cornhole tournament. Which, first of all, I was thinking, are you kidding? I'm like, I'm the boss. Like, I, I, I absolutely can win the cornhole tournament. But then she's like, no, no, no. Ethically, you can't win the cornhole tournament. So, I would like to address this. It has the biggest load of crap that I have heard. <laughs> I can tell you this. If, if you would like to help avoid an ethical issue, the best way to do that is one of you needs to find the, the, the courage and, and stamina and ability to beat me on the field of battle. So I would just like to say that, that, that in, in addressing this cornhole ethical issue, um, I do intend to create the ethical issue, and if that is an issue for you, beat me. All right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you. And we just, Lord, we just take a moment and, and recognize that, that when we say, come Holy Spirit, we say it with the reality that, that you are here, you were here, and we are joining you in your presence now. Father, I pray that, that as we get into your story, I pray that, that we would feel the connection that exists because you love us. 
So, Father, I pray that, that now all of, those, all of those things, all of the, the, uh, all the barriers that exist that keep us from experiencing your love, would you just come now and move them in the name of Jesus? So, Father, we invite you here. We ask that you release the gifts of your spirit. And we open your word to become closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are in week two of, of the rest of the story, this summer uh, uh, sermon series that we're going through. Um, last week, we began by reaching into some Americana by way of an icon of AM radio history, Paul Harvey. A familiar voice for some of us, especially for those of you that, that uh, know the blowtorch of the West, 850 KOA, and I can tell the people that know 850 KOA because they also know that uh, the Shane Company is just off Arapahoe Road on Poria Street, one half mile east of I-25. That's right, yes. That is hilarious. That, that sticks. And I know some of you are continuing that, and you know the hours and the holiday hours, and that there's another one off the Boulder Turnpike. But anyway, for us today, this was, this was a familiar voice. And, and this, he's reporting on a person or an event that was relevant to the day. Now, this voice would finish the report with some interesting background information, um, little-known facts, and, and he would connect it to the whole by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. In that spirit, we're looking at a handful of, of Scripture that, that when the rest of the story is understood, it helps us to make sense of, of the Bible, which helps us make sense of God, and then we're, we're better able to make sense of the invitation to relationship with him that he extends to us. Now, this gift that we have from God, this, this narrative of his interactions with his creation is one unstoppable narrative of God's unrelenting plan to reconcile with us. This is not just a collection of stories. This isn't the, the do's and the don'ts. This isn't, uh, you know, separated into, into two different sections that don't really go together. This is one continuous narrative from beginning to end. All of it, every chapter of this book, points to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. One narrative, one plan, driving to completion, to and through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. All of this, all of Scripture, everything in Scripture, all of this is about him. And all of this is through him. We see that this reveals life inside these pages and the, that the life is the very life of God. The life of Jesus, the perfecter, of our redemption. We see in John chapter 1, really the, the foundation of, of this sermon series, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. 
through that lens, we look at each of these stories as we go through this series. And the, the historical narrative that we have here unlocks the truth of who God is, who we are, and how we can live in created order with him. Now, because he is unchanging, God is unchanging, I like to take on passages that, that challenge this, that make me say, wait a minute. What's, what's happening here? I like to, to take on passages that, that, you know, at first glance, they make me think that God is doing something maybe not so perfect. That make me think that God is acting rash, unkind, vengeful. Sometimes I look at it from the perspective of, of God is doing something that I would do, which always makes me think maybe I'm not reading this correctly. Because God isn't becoming like me. There's something going on here that maybe I don't understand. So with that context together, let's take a crack at the Tower of Babel. So if you would join me in Genesis 11. We're going to go through verses 1 through 9. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were, were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they speak the same language. After this, nothing they set to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. And now, the rest of the story. Now, if you spent any time with this, pastor, this, this passage of Scripture, you, you've likely come across two very basic, um, most prominent conclusions about what is going on here. One is that this is a narrative of, of crime and punishment, or pride and punishment. And the other is that this is a narrative of the creation of all the different tribes, cultures, languages, uh, sort of an extension of the creative, creation narrative as the author of Genesis is explaining how the world got to be the way that it was, with different people spread all over the place. I find myself in, in the camp of like neither of those but with a flavor of both. What we have here, I believe, is supporting evidence that in the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that from creation forward, Jesus was the plan to bring order into the world. That is what I think is the rest of the story for the Tower of Babel. This is one of those stories that, that, that can challenge our image of God, though. It certainly has challenged mine. The problem is compounded by the cultural differences 
that, that exist between us, the distant audience, and the author and the original audience. The culture's just, there's no room for a one-to-one translation between what made sense to them and what makes sense to us. While this was written for us, it certainly isn't written to us. And, and the cultural divide must be bridged in order for us to understand the rest of the story. Now we're going to get to the actions of humanity that we see in the story in a minute. But what's most pressing for me is the actions of God. And especially what, what that does in terms of like how I image God. The way that I look at God. What's going on here? How does reading this through my modern lens reflect the nature of God in this story? Or maybe another way to say that is, how does the, the, reading this through my cultural lens expose what I think of the nature of God? Now first, it seems like God is forced into a position of responding to his creation. He noticed something that was happening, was caught off guard, and he had to respond. That doesn't really sound like the God that, that, that I see in the rest of Scripture. All-knowing, all-present, if he's everywhere and knows everything, how was he caught off guard by the creation of this, of this tower, this building of the city? Now, because I like to project my way of thinking and my own behaviors in order to make sense of a situation, I know nobody else does that, but... That's kind of a go-to for me, is I just take, like, like my frame of reference, and I just, like, put it on all of you. Which makes you guys really act weird sometimes. But when I do that, in this case, the actions of God end up looking like a massive ego move. Like an overreaction that exposes immaturity, control issues, even some insecurity. Those things can't be God. I know those things can be me, but those things can't be God. If that is God, then nothing else in this book could be true. So he isn't acting like me, but that doesn't settle the question. Just to say, okay, well, that can't be it, because that's not what we see in the rest of Scripture. It doesn't settle the question of what, what is happening here. This action coming on the heels of the flood this action that God takes drastically changes the face of humanity. And we also, we have to make no mistake about this. This move has huge implications for God. Another reason why I don't necessarily think this is just a a, a crime and punishment narrative, there are huge implications for God in what he did. His image bearers are scattered now. They can't communicate effectively with each other And from this event, we've got the reality that interactions will be affected by cultural differences. That hasn't worked out well for us, right? The biggest loss for God, though, is in his action, it's the loss of testimony about him. No longer is there a unified voice to proclaim his defeat of chaos. There's no mechanism for declaring his glory. This is lost because the people are scattered and divided. So what is the rest of the story? 
if this were pride and punishment as a narrative, then again, there would be huge implications on the nature of God in that as well. Now let me be clear, there was definitely pride. There definitely was sin. There was action against God that demanded a response. In, in fact, this, this moment in history, just looking at the human side of it for, for, for a second, this action is one of the most blatant acts of defiance in world history. Of all time, this passage is one of the most blatant acts. We could call this like the metaphorical middle finger to the face of God. Twice thus far, God had given clear instructions to his creation about their role in the created order. Twice, he told his creation to multiply, to fill, and to rule. He gave these instructions to Adam before the fall and also to Noah after the flood. And now the people, they want to build a city, which means they're not interested in filling the world. They want to build a tower to demonstrate their agency and power, and in so doing, declare themselves to be the center of order. Declare themselves to be the thing that everything else revolves around. They're saying in no uncertain terms, God, not your will be done. My will be done. This is absolutely a replay of Adam's sin in the garden. This is an example of sin that, that is replicated all over history, where we declare ourselves to be our own gods, we declare ourselves as the center of the world, and we begin, or we design relationships around that fact. We design relationships with others that reflects our own importance. Rather than finding joy in praising God, happiness is found in receiving praise from others or in just praising ourselves. This is absolutely pride. And God absolutely brings his discipline against it. I just don't think that's the point of the story. Besides the pride and the punishment narrative, there is an explanatory narrative that, that says the story is about how nations, races, and cultures came to be and is an extension of the creation narrative. It's explaining things about how things got to be the way that they are, and, and it really is, is more uh, uh, aimed at, at teaching us about the things that happened before that makes sense of the way things are right now. I think this is true, but it also misses the point. If we see this as a reaction on the part of God, a reaction would communicate that God had to alter his plan, that he didn't see this thing coming. How could the all-knowing, ever-present God be caught off guard? Now, parents know this feeling. When you come into a room where 
your kids have declared their own authority. And shocked, we say, what'd you do? Maybe I'm the only one that's done that. But this absolutely is, is one of the narratives that, that can come from this story is that God, his children are down in, in the, the basement. They're doing whatever they're doing. He's not paying attention. He's got other things to do. He goes down there and, and sort of kind of reestablishes himself as, as kind of paying attention. And he's shocked about what he finds. Every time I did that, especially when I would have to explain to Jenna what had happened, I found the fact that I wasn't in the room was not actually a good excuse. So applying that, in this case, really would affect the way that I image God. See, we we ask that because we didn't know what they were doing because of our lack of attention. Or I'll just own that. I asked the question of my kids because I didn't know what they were doing because I wasn't paying any attention. And our kids took the reins of sovereignty and they began to construct their own kingdom. My kids were good at that. Now consider the implications of, of that on what's happening here. God could not be who he says that he is if he's shocked by what the kids are doing. The reaction in verse 6 then, that look, is not a look of surprise. It's got to be something else, especially through the lens of our guiding passage for this series. And I want to put this up again uh, just so, so we can keep this as our, our thread. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So now, with that as our thread, this is what's going on. John 1, verses 1 through 5, is the rest of the story here. But I've told you kind of what I don't think that it is. Let me take a whack at what I think this is, what is really going on. This is not a story about depravity. This is a story about love. If it was a story about depravity, it would be more about the sin of the people, which means it would be about the people. If it's a story about love, it's a story about God. I believe this is a story about love, so this is a story about God. This is a story about Jesus. This is a story about intentionality. We see intentionality in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and we see intentionality in God's actions towards the Tower of Babel. This story is about Jesus. A lot of important points that are on the periphery. Absolutely. But the main thrust is that Jesus, the Son of God, will bring the kingdom of God and break into this kingdom of the air and open a path for redemption between God and his creation. That's the rest of the story. I'll try to explain it a little bit more. That look in verse 6, going back to the look in verse 6. It's not a surprise. It's not surprise, it's scorn. The pa- passage says that God had to come down to look at the tower. This is the ancient Near East culture showing that, that God, that this is God reacting in scorn. He's coming down to this thing. From, from high to low, God is coming down to see the tower. 
the marvel of human creation. Really, isn't that marvelous? This thing that that humanity was able to create with all of their power, the Almighty had to come down. The implication is that the lives we construct for our own glory are actually not that breathtaking. I don't mean to let some of the air out of the room by saying that. But the lives that we construct for our own glory are not that breathtaking. God comes down so he can see this puny thing that's meant to reflect human power and glory. Humans did not do something that surprised God, especially viewed from the lens that this is a replay of the sin of the garden, the sin of Adam and Eve that we know is the fall. This was not a shock. This actually demonstrates the permission of God to choose something other than him to be the center of the world. And with that permission, God's plan unfolds a little bit further. This plan reflects unfailing love. In response, in response to the sins of pride that he sees, God takes action that will facilitate the opening of redemption. The gate to reconciliation will swing wide as he scatters the people across the globe into different lands, languages, and cultures. With the creation of tribes, his plan can progress. With the creation of tribes, the seeds of the nation of Israel are planted. So, yes, scattering is a response of judgment on sin, of course. But more so, it is the design of the glory of Christ, a design for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of self. It's a declaration of intent to reconcile. It's an act of unfailing love. In the very next chapter of Genesis, we see a man, Abram, descendant of the people that are scattered. This man is called into a relationship with God. This relationship would see the nation of Israel born out of the interaction between God and Abraham. And soon, soon to be called Abraham. And through his line would be a people set apart by God. Now, we're getting closer to the rest of the story. Now, the image of God is coming through. After breaking relationship with God, we know this, and we've seen this in the fall, earlier in the, in the book of Genesis, humans are subject to the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin is death. We see death manifest throughout history as separation from God. When we worship things that are not God, we get what we ask for. We get the salvation that those things can bring. We get the counterfeit kingdom. 
And with the counterfeit kingdom, we get counterfeit freedom. When we desire to be the center of order, we are separated from God. We experience the death of that sin. We see in this story today the foundation for, for this in those that he chooses to participate in the creation of a people, the people of God, the nation of Israel, to which he gave the law. We see him invite into the process not the perfect. We see him invite into the process of reconciliation, not those that have earned. We see him meet them where they are. He created the nation of Israel, and he created the law. He gave the law only to this nation of Israel because he had a plan. Sin, now, with the creation of law, with the creation of of these rules of conduct, for being in right relationship with God. Sin can now be defined as breaking the law between God and his people, the relational expression of trying to be the center of order. Now, because one people had the law, only one people could break the law. And here lies the path to redemption with the seeds planted at the Tower of Babel. When one king acting as representative for the nation, assumes all of the sins of the nation and pays the price. Jesus, King, pays the penalty for my sin and for yours. He brings order to that chaos. This action of sacrificial love is an invitation to place our faith in Jesus, to agree and confess that he he is who he says that he is, He is doing what he says that he will do. This leads us to the path of redemption as the life of sin dies away, and die it must. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. With the knowledge of this truth, we are beckoned to give up our selfish ways. Place God as the center of our order. Make his will the will of our own lives and share in the creation designed by the creator. The true freedom that comes when we're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to each other. Vineyard, imagine what this could mean for us. What we see here, after this monumental middle finger to the face of God, we don't see God in fury, in rage, in contempt. We don't see him come down and smash the tower in a revenge-seeking, like, Godzilla, like, must-smash narrative. That's not what's going on. His response is justice built on the foundation of love. If you have ever felt that your actions that could be seen as an affront to God warrant 
his coming down from his throne and crushing you. I would submit to you that that is not the rest of the story. What we see here is that love is the narrative expressed of God. He shows humanity the natural consequences of worshiping self. And then, with those natural consequences shown and understood, he sets the conditions to take the burden of that sin onto himself in his desire to be in relationship with us. This monumental middle finger to the face of God did not meet the wrath of God. It met the love of God. He took that sin onto himself. He paid the price for that sin. And in paying that price, he died that we might live. This is not a story of pride and punishment. This is a story of the love of God. This is the theme that resonates through history. We see this theme in John chapter 3. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his, own, his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. The Tower of Babel is an early reflection of this intention and a gospel announcement of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It is a gospel announcement. It is announcing the Tower of Babel announces the coming of Jesus Christ. And now you know the rest of the story. Now as we turn back to worship, if you are hearing this message for the first time, if you're seeing that God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you, if you're hearing this and you're in the place of, of just expecting that, that this Godzilla move would come against all of the places where you have, have committed an affront to God, if you're expecting his punishment I would invite you to experience his love. If you have never had this invitation, I would like to make this invitation to you. That this king of glory, this king that we see, that, that, that emerges from the narrative of scripture, this wasn't just for the people in this book. It wasn't just for the people that do good. It wasn't just for the people that have earned it. This is an invitation for all. And so if you're in that place, if you're ready for this to be your reality as well, would you join me in this prayer? Father,
I confess to you that I have tried to be the author of my own life. Father, I confess that I have sinned against you by making myself my own center of order. I confess all of these things, Lord, and I ask that you would forgive me. Father, I pray for your forgiveness. And I ask, Lord, that you would come into my heart. I pray that Jesus would be the center of my order. I pray that Jesus would be the king, that he says that he is. And I believe and attest that for me he is who he says that he is. I pray this in Jesus' name.